going to be speaking on worship this morning, eventually in the context of John 4, I might mention, um, this has nothing to do with the rest, sort of, but, you know, all of us, if you own property in Shawnee County, you pay for the library. And it's a pretty good chunk of change, actually, when you look at what it is per household. I'm, I think for our house, it's probably about $150 a year just for the library. Now, we get our money's worth out of the library, probably in one month, minus the year. But, you know, if I'm teaching on something, I always check the library to see what they have. And I checked out four or five books, all of them great books, on worship this last week. This is Jerry Bridges. They had two by him. I've got two or three others. Anyway, this was, a, this was very helpful, kind of a devotional book, brought together lots of scriptures and just practical application about worship. And the Christian section may lack a lot in some ways, but they've got lots of good books and resources. And just a plug, if you need something, whether it's this or anything else, the library is just a great resource to go to and to check out. And this I found specifically, I exalt you, O God, encountering his greatness in your private worship. Jerry Bridges, very helpful, very down-to-earth, and very encouraging. So this or others, a couple others by him there, uh, I would just recommend to you the library and the resources they've got for this or other things as well. <clears throat> I'm going to start what to me is kind of an odd place to start on worship, but Psalm 2, we will end up in John 4 with a woman at a well, but <clears throat> Psalm 2, to kick off this theme of worship, Worship is a huge topic. There's all kinds of things we could say about it. I want to start here. I'll start at verse 5. This is a messianic, in fact, a key messianic psalm. It's quoted in Acts by the early church. And the picture is that man, in his foolish rage against God, says, we do things our way. God in heaven laughs at man. And it says in verse 5, He, God, will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. And this is God speaking. As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, God's king, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. The conclusion to this conversation from heaven is, Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. The fact that heaven says, I've installed my own king. You guys forget about your petty uh, concepts of king. I've got my king, and I'm installing him on Mount Zion, God's king, the Messiah, the anointed one. And to that, the admonition is this. Worship the Lord with reverence. The term worship there means serve. Serve the Lord with fear, with awe, with reverence. Serve him. And when it says, do homage to the Son, it is literally kiss the son lest he become angry now we especially in, in the united states we've lost the sense of of uh, homage to earthly powers we're all democrats and republicans we vote we kind of hold our future in our own hands but of course for most of history most people this was not the case a king had the power of life and death 
And in this ultimate king, the admonition is serve him, kiss him before he becomes angry. And the picture is this. The new king is anointed, and let's say you're someone in the kingdom that has some relationship with him. You would come into his presence, you would bow down before him, and you would kiss his hand. And in doing so, you were recognizing his power to rule. And you were showing showing submission. When you bowed before him, you were not only humbling yourself, but of course to anyone with a sword or with power, you were submitting yourself, your life, entirely into his keeping. You know, typically if someone's beheaded, they kneel and they bow their head. And that's the position in which they lose their life. This was a humbling uh, position, but it was also a, a... position that indicated you have power over me and when they'd kiss the hand it was an indication of showing loyalty to this new ruler if you see footage even today on the news if you see someone visiting the pope what do they do they kneel and they kiss that's right it's the same thing and it's from it this is this is ages old practice it was showing submission to the one who was set in authority over you to the power over you In Psalm 2, the admonition is you better come before this newly installed king gets angry, serve him in reverence, and kiss him. Show your allegiance to the king, worship him, serve him while you can. The New International Dictionary of Theology says of worship this, man's sense of awe in the presence of the magnificent, the frightening, or the miraculous, illustrates something of what is meant by worship. His response may be one of speechlessness, paralysis, emulation, or dedication. And if you think, just think briefly of the encounters men have with God, that is when they see him in the scriptures, what the typical response is, they fall down before him, generally because they can't do anything else. Physically, they're without power in front of this all-consuming power or presence. They fall down. They take the position of worship, even if they weren't trying to. Overwhelmed, overawed by his presence. In the New Testament, uh, the key term for worship, used 32 of the 40 times it's translated worship, is proskuneo. Pros is towards or forward. And kuneo is to kiss. It's the same thought from Psalm 2. We bow down before and we kiss. So when you're reading the term in the New Testament to worship God, it is this sense. It's to fall before him and kiss him, showing your humble position before him. That's what creatures are supposed to do, to recognize. And kissing him, showing submission. Let me read to you two verses out of the New Testament that that are great examples of this. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul was advocating that people prophesy in the public meetings more than they spoke in tongues. And he said when these prophetic utterances were given in the meeting, he said that when unbelievers were there, the secret of his hearts are disclosed and he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. That is... When his heart is revealed by the truth being spoken in the meeting, he would fall down acknowledging God's presence. This is a perfect picture of worship. Falling down, God is here, 
and he knows what's going on in my heart, things no human could know. Or Revelation 4.10, this is in heaven. John sees 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him. They, they bow before him, kissing him, showing submission. Worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory, honor, power. You created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. These are great physical illustrations of what Psalm 2 is talking about and about what worship is. Uh, it's a good thing, by the way, uh, Roman Catholics and others... Several of us were raised in that. You know, kneeling is a great physical position because like this, it shows humility. We lower ourselves before our superior. We kneel. A lot of times during my quiet times, I'm most comfortable kneeling at the couch because that's, I feel right before God that my physical posture is one of humility, kneeling before God. There's a lot to be said for that thought, even physically. Worship is not primarily physical, but it certainly involves us physically, and kneeling in prayer, or prostrating ourselves spiritually or physically before God is a good thing to do. Another term used in the New Testament for worship is latreia or uh, latra ua, something like that, pretty close. We get the term, uh, the English term liturgy. Liturgy was public service. This term didn't originate in the church. The, uh, the Romans gave public service. They had a liturgy. They served the public by doing something for the public good. When we have a church service, we, we lose the sense of words, of course, over time. When you go to a service, that's just a way of saying a meeting. We say a service, church service. We mean a church meeting. But originally the thought was it was the public meeting when we served God when we bowed before God. So originally they were saying the public time in which we collectively serve God, we bow before God, we worship God. Now we just say the service, the church service. It loses its meaning. It means literally to serve him. So that if we say a waiter, he waits on you, we understand he is serving. But that's, that's the same thought for us. We are serving God when we gather collectively to him. And then last but not least, the English term worship kind of moves away from these meanings physically of bowing and showing submission. It has more to do with declaring God's worth. Worship has to do with the sense of worth. God is worth praise or adoration or service, and so we declare his praise. Most of the time when we talk about worship today, we are thinking about singing in a Christian service, singing singing psalms, and that's worship. If, if our thinking of worship is limited to it's when we praise God in song on Sunday morning, it's a really narrow, inadequate sense of worship. It includes that. And when we praise, when we sing songs, or when we say something publicly, that is worship. It doesn't detract from that sense. But it's that and a whole lot more. In fact, if you remember in Romans 12, Paul, after telling us all God has done for us, then encourages us to be like a sacrifice that's put on an altar, which is wholly dedicated to God, which is our reasonable service of worship. To give ourselves entirely to God is reasonable in light of who he is 
and what he's done for us. And so worship is the church singing songs, but it's that and so much more. In fact, worship, if you and I don't worship through the week, I don't know what we do on Sunday morning. Is it, maybe it's just lip service. You remember there's a passage in Isaiah in which it says, this people draws near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far away. If we just worship God on Sunday, we probably don't worship him at all. Because our whole lives are to have that set that our faces towards God, we acknowledge him in all that we do. And our life, therefore, is either a sacrifice on an altar, dedicated to him, given to him, or it's us figuratively or physically bowing to him in submission and offering ourselves to him in service. So that's worship. Yes, it's singing. Yes, it's the public meeting. But it's an attitude of heart that we acknowledge who God is and what he is, and we present ourselves to him. We bow down and kiss the king, as it were. Bring that in to John 4, which is where we're at this morning. John 4, verses 21 through 24. We spent a long time talking to a woman at a well, and this is still part of that conversation. We'll actually have one more teaching out of John 4. Um, you remember she's so diversionary. You know, Jesus is kind of honing in on her personally, and it's a little uncomfortable, and so she keeps asking these questions as a means of diverting attention from her own life. And she says, hey, how about that worship question, that political hot button? You know, you guys say Jerusalem, but we, we worship on our own mountain. What do you think? Jesus says in John 4:21, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you don't know. We worship that which we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. You remember, this is not a detraction of the worship that occurred in the temple that God mandated during Jesus' day. God gave the law to Moses, and the law specified how you were to approach God and where you were to approach God, what sacrifices you would bring to the temple or the tabernacle in the wilderness, but at this point to the temple in Jerusalem. That was worship. Worship was offering animals so that your sins were figuratively, through the animals, were covered and you were restored to God. Or you'd bring your animals as peace offerings in which they'd be sacrificed. And you were fellowshipping with God in offering the animals and in feasting with your family at the temple in God's presence. So this is not a detraction on the temple per se or the offerings in the sacrificial system that Jesus himself had ordained through Moses. But... He says worship is that, but it's more. And an hour is coming when it won't be a geographic issue about where you worship. Worship won't be about geography. And it will have less to do with physical things than it will with spiritual things. That hour was coming. And I'm assuming it came at Pentecost, essentially, when the Holy Spirit was given. And God has a new temple on earth. It's people instead of a physical building on Mount Zion. So Jesus is saying worship won't be restricted geographically. The key components of worship will be, it'll be in spirit and it will be in truth. God's spirit, those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. 
Concerning worshiping in spirit, there's probably two things, let me suggest, that this refers to. Um, The first is related to spiritual beings and a spiritual God. You remember before the fall, Adam and Eve, very briefly at least, described in Genesis, Adam and Eve hear God talk, they walk with him in the garden, they see him in whatever form, I'm assuming Jesus, God the Son took, walked with them in the garden, fellowship with them, no hindrance, no problems. But then they sinned. And you remember God said, if you eat, you will die. And they ate, and they didn't die physically immediately, but they did die immediately spiritually. They were now cut off from God. They could not freely interact any longer with God because God was spirit and that physical, or excuse me, that spiritual union, spiritual face-to-face, as it were, was gone. Now they have shame and fear instead and they have to hide. They did not have the ability or the capability to fellowship with God after the fall that they had before. And what was true for Adam and Eve is true for every one of us born on the earth. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were, that is, spiritually dead. You didn't interact with God. You didn't have the capability of interacting with God. Spiritually, you were dead. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together, with Christ. You and I enter the world like Adam and Eve did after sin, that is, we have a spiritual inability to interact with God, a spiritual being. We're spiritually cut off from God. We are spiritually dead. We can't worship him because we can't fellowship with him. Psalm 116 says this, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I think the first call here when Jesus says you'll worship in spirit is an invitation to salvation. Remember, he's speaking to a woman. This is truth that's true for all of us, but he's speaking to an individual woman who has been evasive since he first spoke with her. She has sin issues and she doesn't want to be confronted. And I assume that the first portion of this, those will worship in spirit, is an invitation to salvation for this woman or for anyone else. Do you want to worship God? You've got to be reunited spiritually. No one can worship God who's spiritually dead. It doesn't happen. We've got to have a new life. We've got to be reunited with him spiritually before we can worship him. So I understand the first call here is to accept salvation, which is exactly what Psalm 116 talks about. So in a sense, our first act, any human being's first act of worship, bowing down to God, is in salvation. It's humble acknowledgement that we're deficient, that we have a sin issue, and we humbly bow before God, and with David in Psalm 116, we accept salvation. So the first act of worship, if you will, is bowing to receive salvation. It's receiving something. It's not even giving something. The first act of genuine worship is salvation, accepting God's life. The second has to do with the reality of what we do. Um, 
that is to worship in spirit, has to do with worshiping with um, our heart, with our soul, with our intellect. It means something that's not feigned. Uh, There's a psalm in which David talks about being king and he rules over all these people. And it says they give feigned obedience, that is. They obey him because they must, not because they want to. Here, Jesus is saying when you worship God in spirit, it should be worship truly given to God because that's what's in our heart. Not because we're pretending at something. You know, and frankly, it's easy to go through the motions. If we're Christians, we can be far from God and we can sing songs at church on Sunday morning. We can give thanks before meals and, and be far away. And that's not worship in spirit. It's not from the heart. It's not true of what's going on inside us. God wants worship from those who are reunited with him spiritually. They have spiritual life and therefore can fellowship with him. And within that context, he wants spirit that's from the heart, unfeigned, genuine. This is true even in the Old Testament. You remember God said the great commandment was to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's that same thought. Worship should involve all, all that we are and all that we do, not just something that we play at from time to time. You know that if someone comes up to you and they flatter you by saying something nice, you know that if it's not heartfelt, you don't value it. You go, yeah, yeah. You know, if your child comes up and praises you and you know they just want the cookie, it's like, yeah, yeah, what do you really want? Or if someone comes up and you know they want something and so they say something that's flattering, it may be true, but you don't value it because you know the motive behind it. That's the same with worship related to God, worshiping in spirit. He wants it to be unfeigned. The second component Jesus said about worship is truth, the truth quotient, or the truth issue. Listen to what the New International Dictionary of Theology, you're thrilled. As soon as I say that, aren't you? Look, the lights go on, sleeping people wake up when you mention the dictionary. I love dictionaries. What's wrong with me? They're my bread and butter. Uh, Listen, I thought this was good. I think you will too, or you should. In order truly to worship, two fundamental elements are needed. Revelation, through which God shows himself to man, and response, through which awe-stricken man responds to God. Christian worship will depend on revelation. It is therefore founded on theology. There's another exciting term. The lights go brighter, Rachel. It's amazing. Theology. Theology is exciting, right? Because it's God. God's the most exciting subject in the universe. Theology is the study of God. What could be more exciting? So Revelation, it's therefore founded on theology, the knowledge of God. The shortest route to deeper and richer worship is clearer theology. This will enable the worshiper to know who and how great God is. According to the Bible, God alone is to be worshipped and served. He is to be served with man's whole being. Mind as well as emotions, physique as well as feelings are to combine in God's praise. The very nature of God, overwhelming in his attributes, demands everything of man. Now, I love this because this is where the rubber hits the road, I think, for most of us. If I say, let's worship, or if I say, worship, what an exciting thought. And we yawn or ho-hum. You know what I think the, the issue is? 
it's this. It's, uh, it's a short shortage of truth on our part. If you find that you're a dull worshiper, I would suggest you check your truth tank. It's probably empty or it's not very full. Because this is the deal. The reason those folks in the scriptural encounters that are recorded for us, when they see God and they fall down and worship, or they spout praise to God, it's because they've got a truth encounter. They know something now in a way they didn't know before. They have a knowledge of God they didn't have before. That's why they respond the way they do. You remember Job? You know, Job's worth reading just to get to the last... Uh, chapters 38 through 42 or so. What does Job say at the end? He said, I'd heard about you before with the hearing of the ear, but now I've seen you. His whole life has changed. His whole demeanor, his thought processes are changed. He says, now I repent. My whole mind has changed because now I see you as you are. Now I know something I didn't know before. If you and I are dull spiritually, I suggest it's for a lack of truth. That's theology. That's why that dull word is so important. That's why those dusty books that talk about God are so valuable. It's because it's that truth quotient that we need. Most of us know lots of things. I mean, if you've got hobbies, I dare say, you know about cars, kites, I don't know what, uh, movies, whatever the hobbies are, You invest yourself, you're excited about something because of what you know. The more you know about God, the more excited you'll be about worship. Not because worship is this thing we do, it's not like a thing we plug into, but it's because worship is the encounter with God. If God is the most exciting person in the universe, and he is, the most exciting subject, and he is, then worship meaning this touching God, the most exciting, awesome, powerful entity, thing we can ever think of or consider, worship should be the most exciting thing in our vocabulary. Our presence before God because of who he is and simply our natural response to the truth of who and what he is. It shouldn't be work. Worship can be work in the sense of, Lord, I know you've called me to do something that I don't like to do. And so I'm going to do it to worship you. That's good. That's worship, and God accepts that. But in a bigger sense, thinking specifically of being in God's presence itself, worship is knowing who he is. It's seeing him as he is. And the natural response of the redeemed to seeing God is worship. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to work up the emotions. They're there. The more you know about God, the more truth that is real to you about God, the more vital worship is, our sense of worshiping God. One of the good things about this book by uh, Jerry Bridges was he kind of incorporates passages out of the Bible kind of as a prayer. He kind of paraphrases it, you know, so that... Uh, Job, the the end passage of Job, Job starts talking about God, creator of the universe in various ways, sets the stars in order, names them all, the Pleiades, that's just his playground. Or Isaiah 40, when it talks about God, he measures the universe with his hand, 
the universe that's so vast we, we can't measure its, you know, for light years, numbers that are too big for our brain, God measures it with his hand. Or the nations, they're like a speck of dust on a scale. Passages like this, when you're in the scriptures, they remind you of how vast God is. So if your truth tank is a little empty, read some of the passages that talk about who God is and what he's like. Because that's what engenders worship in us. And also, lastly, remember that God is himself truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Or Jesus said, Lord, sanctify them, make them holy, set them apart by your word. Your word is truth. When the Holy Spirit comes, the spirit of truth, he'll teach you all things. God is, in his essence, he's truth. He is life as it really is. And he doesn't accept us coming to him in some other countenance, deception or something that's feigned. He is truth, and he demands, he requires truth. It's the essence of his nature. I've got a question for you. Jesus says to this woman, God seeks worshipers. Now, My question is, why in the world does God seek worshipers? You know, sometimes we have, uh, we make God human. You know, idolatry is just, it's uh, deifying objects or it's humanizing God. Um, we make God a lot too much like ourselves. We are created in His image, but uh, <clears throat> it's easy to press that too far. If I tell you that God seeks worshipers, God is advertising, as it were, for worshipers, you might say, what's wrong with Him? Does He have low self-esteem? Why does God need me to come and tell Him how good He is or how great He is? What's God's problem? Or God is so self-centered Can you believe that guy? He wants me to come and worship. What's wrong with him? Now, all of that would be true if we were talking about a human seeking worshipers. All of those things would be true. But when we apply these things to God, they're not true anymore. They're not true at all. The truth is God is so grand, he is so glorious, he is so complete in himself that he is the ultimate In the end, he's the only object of worship that's worthy of worship by any and all. If God didn't, in a sense, seek worshipers, he would be untrue to himself. Everything that God creates is under God. Nothing can be God but God. So even the angels, what do they when they see him in heaven? They worship him because they see him as he is. If God didn't seek worshipers, he would be untrue to his own glory, his own completeness, his own deity. God is unlike all of us. When we say God's holy, he's entirely different than us. He's entirely unique to anything and anyone else in the universe. And he's not just different, he is complete in all things, in all ways. So that for God to seek worshipers, it's the natural, indeed it's the required thing for deity to do. Anything God creates should worship him. He's only being true to himself when he invites us to worship. But the flip side of that is this. When we come and worship God, we are benefited. We are blessed when we bless God. 
When we humble ourselves before God, we are exalted. When we exalt God, we are exalted. Now, Jesse has a new flute, quite expensive. It's going to take her through her college career at Washburn, this shiny new flute. Now, if Jesse raises that flute to her mouth and blows through it, and it says, I'm not interested in playing today, or it refuses to play those sweet notes, or it blows sour notes instead, we'd say, what in the world is wrong with that flute? You see, the flute is designed to make music. It's designed to be played. So if it doesn't, something's wrong. If you and I were the earth or we were planets and the sun said to us, come worship me, it'd be okay. Because you see, the sun is the center of the universe, our solar system. There's no life on this planet that doesn't come from the sun, directly or indirectly. Absolutely. You take away the sun, there's no life on this earth. Physically, the sun is the center of life on this earth. So if the sun said to us as a planet, hey, come worship me, it'd be okay. You know what? I have no life apart from that sun, from the energy that emanates from the sun, from the glory of the sun. If I as planet Earth or planet Mars or Venus or whatever else bow down to the sun, it's okay because guess what? That's appropriate. I get all my life from that glowing star, from the sun. Well, you and I are most humid, human And we display our ultimate glory as creatures when we come and worship God. The flute is most the flute when it's playing. And the sun is most the sun, so to speak, when it's shining light and life in the universe. And we are most human. We are most saved, not that we're saved any more or less. But we are most what God intended us to be when we worship. We see him as he is, and we're most human, and we're exalted when we see him as he is, and we respond appropriately, which is to worship him. You guys know the world makes fun of heaven in the sense that movies, I saw one not long ago, I don't remember which one it is. Heaven is you're on a cloud strumming a harp. How fun is that? I talked to a painter years ago who said he had no interest in heaven because he never did like organ music. He... He was entirely serious. You see, in their minds, this thought of heaven is, it's boring. It's boring. Who would want to go listen to organ music? Who would want to go and sit on a cloud strumming a harp? But it, <laughs> It's a lie, of course. That's not heaven. That's not heaven at all. Heaven's not strumming on a harp. Heaven... I hope this is not offensive. Heaven is like sex. That is, you know, in human interaction, sex is the most exciting interaction you can have with another human being by God's design. Sex is the most intimate interaction between two people possible. Sex is this great thing in which you are most revealed to each other in the intimacy of the sexual interaction with each other in a a marriage between a man and a woman. It's the most intimate, revealing, rewarding, etc. That's what sex is. That's what spiritually heaven is. So if we're thinking harps on clouds, or if we're thinking, um, what was the other thing? Organ music, we're missing the boat. Think of yourself as a young, impassioned, 
person who's engaged to be married, what do you want to do more than anything else? You want to get physical with your intended. Song of Solomon. People criticize, some rightly so, saying the Song of Solomon is spiritual. It is spiritual, but it was about real physical relationship between a king and his bride. And it's exalted in the Song of Solomon. And then it does have its spiritual application. Well, see, that's heaven. Heaven is these is young lovers who want to get married, and all they want to do is spend time with each other. So if you think about heaven, don't think about harps and clouds. Think about sex if you want to, because that's what it's closer to. <clears throat> or if you're into roller, I'm, <clears throat> pardon me, but <clears throat> there is an application here. <clears throat> if you like roller coasters, if you like whatever you, whatever thing you can think of, the reason sex is a good one is because it's personal, it's relationship-centered, it's face-to-face. <clears throat> That's why I'm convinced physical sex, by the way, is going to be a poor shadow, I'm convinced, of the intimacy and the glory we experience with God in heaven, worshiping Him. It is, in my mind, it is the best analogy we have. But if you're into roller coasters, or if you're into something else that you consider exciting and ultimate, that's heaven. That's a glimpse of heaven. It's not boring. It's not boring. It's the ultimate party. It's the ultimate concert. It's the ultimate vacation, hunting trip, you name it. Whatever you can think of, that's heaven. Because God is himself all these things. You know, I was going over my teaching this morning. I was walking on the trail. And I confess, I had a wretched day yesterday. Man, I was... And I woke up this morning, you know, the one thing I had absolutely no interest in was this teaching. <clears throat> took a walk on the trail, I took my notes with me, and I felt like I was in Colorado again. And I saw the birds and it rained on me and the sun was shining, and I'm thinking about God and his things, and you know what, my whole demeanor's changed. Because my mind went from the million and one things I had to do to God. And all of a sudden, I have no cares. I have no worries. God's in heaven. I know who he is. I belong to him, and life is good again. And it was just because of worship. My focus, my attention's back on God. Guess what? Life's good again. Yesterday, I was thinking about all the things I had to do, the work I didn't want to do, the places I wanted to be and couldn't be. But you know what? If I had just stopped, if I would have just reset my mind on God and his things and his glory, it would have been a good day yesterday. My loss. The work got done. That's a good thing. But I lost. And today, we can get the jobs done, but we lose if we don't do it with this attitude of worship. God, we know who you are. We can't help but worship. Let me close. Worship should be the absolutely natural inclination of our hearts to God when we see him as he is, when we reflect on what's true of him and what he's done for us and what he's going to do for us, where we're going. One of the things, though, besides, um, besides a lack of truth, you know, we can't worship a person we don't know. Besides the lack of truth, the other single thing that I would say keeps us from worship is sin. Sin, that dirty three-letter word. And I don't mean just 
big sins. I mean little sins. I mean any sin. You know, to the degree that we're double-minded, God, I love you, but I've got some other things to attend to. That's sin. That's not letting God be God. Or to the degree that I'm holding consciously sins in my life. I'm holding on to them. I'm telling God, you, you go rule your universe, but this thing's mine. I'm going to do these things my way. You can't worship. You can't worship if sin is keeping you back. God said through Isaiah to Israel, Israel says, hey, God, you don't hear our prayers anymore. He said, yeah, there's a sin issue. Your sins have come between us. And when you and I think about worshiping, if we're harboring sin, things we know God doesn't want us about, it keeps us from worship. That goes back to the spirit and truth. Then we're worshiping half-heartedly. God, you can, I'll worship you over here, but, but I'm holding on to this. Sorry, you can't have that. Remember, remember Psalm 2. When they come before the king, let's say that you're a vassal king. Let's say Nebuchadnezzar's the high king and you're the king of Israel. You know what you do to the, to the high king? You bow down before him and you kiss his hand, even though you're a king. And when you do, you're saying, I and all my kingdom is yours. And he says, rise and rule my kingdom for me. But you're giving him everything. When we sin, what we're doing is we're failing to bow. We're going through the motions and we're saying, Lord, you can have some and not all. He's God. And it's not enough. He does demand our all. He has to. Anything else doesn't reflect truth. So, if we're short on worship... Ask yourself, what do I know to be true of God? Do I, do I worship God in spirit and truth? Do I give him my whole heart? Do I bow before him and offer him my life? Do I know what's true about him? If I find worship boring, what do I really know about God? God's not boring. Heaven's not going to be boring. If worship is boring in my life, ask about sin, Lord. Is there something in my heart and my life that's keeping me from you? And... Do the theology, whatever that looks like for you. Read your Bible. Read passages that remind you how great God is. Even if you don't get to passages you consider less rewarding, read the ones that draw your heart to God. Isaiah 40 does it for me every time. Every time. That's a passage I can go to if I'm forgetting and I remember again. You know what? Youths are going to stumble badly and grow weary. But those who wait on the Lord, they're going to renew their strength. They're going to mount up on wings like eagles. Isaiah 40. You'll you'll have passages that will do it for you, but remind yourself what's true. And we'll take a minute to worship here. We'll sing. We'll worship. But before we do, would you take a moment with me? And if there's something between you and the Lord, give that to him, a sin or a concern. And we'll close in prayer, and then we'll worship in praise. Lord, you're the ultimate and only object of real worship. And it's only our sin or our ignorance, Lord, that keeps us 
from worshiping you as we should. Lord, help us to see worship as an invitation to glory, to joy, to peace, to excitement. Not as something we're condemned to, Lord, but something we're called up to. Lord, I know that eternity won't be too long to see your glory continue to unfold, your infinite vastness, your goodness, your power, your majesty. Lord, help us to get glimpses of you here on earth today so that we can serve you as we should, so that we can worship you as we ought. Lord, out of duty at times, because that's okay, but Lord, mostly out of love, realizing who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, help us to reject the world's lies about you and about heaven. Help us to embrace you as you are and to bow before you. Lord, help us to, with Paul, offer all that we are and have to you, not just because it's right, but because we are most human. We are most joyful, Lord, when we are worshiping in your presence. As you search, Lord, for worshipers, may your search be found in each one of us. In Jesus' name.